we have to help leaders understand that because you've been trained or your experience led you to this outcome, that doesn't mean that those other pathways still won't get you there. What is up, People First Leaders? My name is Chris Lynn, and I am your advocate and host for the Leading People First podcast, where we are set to transform the workplace. I'm happy you're tuning in and joining me on this journey as we talk about leadership and its effect on the employee experience. Thank you so much for downloading this episode, and be sure to hit that subscribe button to get new episodes automatically downloaded to your device. Before I truly understood what being a People First Leader is, I constantly fought for a seat at the table. So are you looking for a seat at the table? Do you know what table you're even sitting at right now? And is it a table of influence or privilege? And can you make space for someone who needs their voice to be heard? This episode's guest is Dr. Joy Nicole Martinez, an award-winning epidemiologist, founder of The Alchemist Agency, international keynote speaker, executive coach and trainer, and member of Forbes Coaches Council. We got to talk about the importance of making space for others when we get our seat at the table and some alternative methods of diversity and inclusion when you may not have the finances to hire a director of DEI or chief diversity officer. So strap on those goggles and let's dive right into this episode. Hey, Joy Nicole, thank you so much for coming on the Leading People First podcast. I really appreciate you being on. This is something I've looked forward to for weeks and I'm so excited to be here. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, let's just kick things off. What does it mean to you to lead people first? Oh, so I remember just reading that question and thinking, oh, this is up my alley because I have an idea that I went to college and one of my masters is an MBA. You know, the MBA program is built around your business being successful, of course, administering it in a way that you're profitable, right? That you're profitable, that you can scale So there are all these classes on understanding economics and accounting and organizational design and development. And there's a small subset about actually leading the people. There's a small part of that program. And even in my doctoral program, there's no real focus on how you design the organization from the inside. It's all very practical but people are not practical, right? People, we are emotional beings. We respond in ways that encompass our experience. It encompasses our our past and our, our culture, our family, all of that we bring to work every day. And to me, leading with people first says, I can honor the entirety of the person, like everything they bring, all the parts that are diverse in them, that make them the person I hired or I'm leading or I'm working alongside, all those beautiful parts, they can stand in front of me and say, this is my contribution. Not solely, and of course, right? We want their their skill, their talent, their acquired knowledge, but we want their wisdom, right? We want their purpose. We want their energy. So for me, leading with people first says, I recognize that no business, and certainly not my business, is successful unless the people who make it up, the people who bring themselves every day, feel as though they're, as you said earlier, bought in, that they're honored, and that they're unleashed 
right? Not just here, but unleashed to be exactly who they are. And that's how we lead in a way that people feel like it's theirs. And when you feel like it's yours, you take care of it, right? You put your all into it. That's where I think our training or our traditional education has somewhat failed us because it hasn't taught us to put people first, but to put product and our principles, our economic principles first. And really, we just have to put the people who do it first. Yeah, I, I absolutely love that. And the thing I love most about it is this thought of unleashing. And I know that you're very, very um, passionate about women empowerment and really recognizing others. And the other thing I really liked is we have this way of thinking where we just want to put things in a box, right? Like we want to make things so clear. And that's why I think programs, our education systems are set up that way because Mm -hmm. they're predictable, right? We have models, we have structure, we have process. And it's like, yay, like we can predict things. But like you said, people are irrational. We're emotional people. We're emotional beings. We are unpredictable in that way, but predictable at the same time. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, we have to recognize that and we have to understand where people are coming from in order to... um, in order to be able to move forward. So I love that. The thing that I also loved about your your background, you have a very diverse background. Your education background is very diverse. And I know you've also said in past interviews that when you were younger, you know, you've shared how you wanted to be wealthy enough to start nonprofits. Mm -hmm. So looking at, you know, when you were younger, like where did that desire to help others and lead people first like where did that come from and walk us through where you where it got to you to where you are today I think there are two basic things that kind of defined the philanthropic part of me or the part of me that's very purpose-driven um first I grew up in a house with um scientists and medical doctors and but entrepreneurs and people of faith and I think when you're a person of faith no matter what that faith is, there's something about you that recognizes there's something bigger, right? There's something more ostentatious than even me, right? And I think you want to connect to it. And the way we connect to anything divine is we connect through other people. So I think part of it was just, I wanted to connect to something bigger than me. So there was a, always an idea of giving, of serving, of, of uplifting, because that's what faith did for me. And then the other part of it was just, um, honestly, I was exposed very young to incredible poverty, inequity, just extraordinary uh, low levels of access to care. I was exposed. I didn't experience it as my life story, but my parents were careful to make sure I saw it firsthand and that I understood how incredibly prosperous my life was, you know, and how incredibly privileged I was, despite any lack of privilege I felt and was experiencing. They always wanted me to see that there was something better, but that as much as we had, we we would say, there but for the grace of God go I. So as much as we had, right, that any given instance, everything could shift and change. And this is the reality for so many people. So I always felt like there was a need for me specifically to give back because I had so much 
And I wanted to connect always to something bigger than me and serve an idea and a purpose bigger than me. And then just love people because ultimately I love people. I just, I just think we are uh, so amazingly created and I wanna see people be able to be all that they're created to be. When, when we look at leadership and looking at loving people, right? How, in your opinion, based on the work that you do with consulting with businesses and, and leaders, how do we reteach? And again, going back to how you answered, right? What leading people first means to you. How do we reteach this notion of loving people and being compassionate about people in the workplace? I think that's really the work that comes with being in um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think, you know, we've been tracking diversity for such a long time, right? We've been teaching, got to be diverse, got to be diverse, got to check those boxes. And in some instance, we've tried to teach or at least call attention to equality. But equity is a totally different thing than equality. Where we have kind of failed in that regard is we haven't taught people to understand that two and three is five, four and one is five, right? We have to teach people there's a way to come to the outcome that doesn't necessarily look the same in its variables. We can still end at five and we can let those variables be diverse because change is, is scary. And so when we talk about training leaders, you have to train them to be able to see past what's comfortable for them and help them gather, you'll still get to the same result, right? We don't, we don't all have to use five plus zero. We can still get to five. We can still get to the outcome. Everyone can still contribute. The pathways can be different. We have to help leaders understand that because you've been trained or your experience led you to this outcome, that doesn't mean that those other pathways still won't get you there. And we have to give them enough skill to be able to speak, to listen actively, right? To really listen, to, to hear and to make room. And oftentimes we have leaders who want to make room and they either don't know how or they don't have the resources to. And I think that's where we start to talk about the inclusion part of our jobs. Right? We talk about, yeah, now that I know that there's a different way to get to five, how do I get at this table and then move my arms or stretch my arms out big enough, you know, kind of hit the sides of me either way so that there's space for two more people. And, and that's where we have to get to, to real leadership. Real leadership is you getting there, right? But then when you're there, punching through space, punching through obstacles, like, you know, I don't care if you have to you know, I tell my kids, I have five kids, like squeeze in, you know, squeeze in and make space. And I think that's where we have to help leaders now is helping them understand how to use the resources they have, accept the different pathways, honor them, and really actively listen for opportunities to make room for others. I think if we can do that, we'll, we'll, we'll all get better. When we look at how we need to make room for others, Right. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of ways, like you said, to get to the conclusion or the solution. Um, and that was actually, I think, the simplest way I've ever heard someone explain like diversity of thought. Like, yeah, there's so many different ways to get there. Um, 
that yeah that's the I, I might take that. <laughs> that is like Use it, please like, go that with is, it. That is literally like this the simplest way to explain diversity of thought. And and right now we're in this huge movement for diversity, right? 2020 has brought so much change in more ways than one. And we know that we have a lot of work to do in diversity, equity, inclusion, like you said, right? We have a lot of space to grow, to learn, and to allow others to have a seat at the table. And while a lot of big name companies or even just big companies in general are hiring directors, VPs, C-suite members specifically for DEI positions, a lot of small companies don't have that advantage. Mm -hmm. And I know you've written about this. So how can smaller companies bring in those people when they don't necessarily have those resources, they don't necessarily have the reputation or big name or even money to show that they're a diverse organization? So um, I always start with the very practical things. Small businesses still have uh, boards, advisory boards. Um, Even if it's not legally in their structure, I think, again, diversity of thought comes from who's influencing you. So I always tell people, if you don't have an actual structured board, then have an advisory board. And that advisory board doesn't have to be some legal entity, but you need to be able to give them bandwidth and the tool to listen to them because you want to make sure you're getting input on your decisions. Sometimes we call those a front row. Um, You want a front row so that when you do your practice, your practice run, right? Oh, I'm thinking about doing this idea. Your front row goes, yay, that's great. Or, and if your front row or your advisory board is diverse, now you have a tool that didn't necessarily cost you anything, right? But it's extraordinarily invaluable. If you are like, for me, I consult. I try very hard to work within anyone's budget, very hard. You know, there are times we have to be willing to go in and assist and help without regard to the finance, because again, this is about the people, right? So I say, find a way to barter, to collaborate. Collaboration is key. So you have something to offer. Reach out, say, hey, listen, I need help. This is not necessarily working. I need a tool, I need a resource. Will you read my policy? Will you, you know, I can offer this. You know, I I believe in the barter and exchange system. I believe in collaboration and partnerships. They have to be strategic. Absolutely use them. Um, There are tools like your show. There are tools like podcasts. You know, every tool is, has something. You take the meat, you throw away the bones, you know, and you use all that information to kind of come up with a refined or defined list of what is going to make your company your concepts more diverse and more inclusive and your solutions more equitable. So everyone can't just pay, you know, the $100,000 a year to have a, a staff member and, or, or the 50 to 70 or $200,000 to have a consultant come in. But there are still ways to ensure you're getting feedback that's real, right? That's real, that's honest, and that's, that's easily applied to a strategy without necessarily breaking the bank. Because I think it is important. And um, I hope that I'm part of that solution and that people will 
hear me kind of chiming the bell and beating the drum and saying, hey, you know, reach out. You know, this is this work is too important to make it to make the, the cost of entry, right, the barrier. I love that idea of an advisory board. I actually haven't heard of that before. And that's such a creative way. And that just goes to show there's so many different ways that we can allow diversity of thought to kind of occur and help guide our decisions within organizations. Um, And that's so that, you know, necessarily, we don't necessarily need like a ERG group per se. I mean, right it'd be great to have, but just saying from the standpoint that there's different ways of of going about it. And I, I really like that. I, I, it's a new way. And it's again, going back to the whole idea of buy-in, right. With your employees, if you have a group of employees, who's on your advisory board and they say like, Oh yeah, that's a great idea. Like, yes. Like, and again, if it's a diverse group and they say, yep, like we can get on board with that. All of a sudden you have a group of champions within your organization saying, like, let's go. Like, this is such a great idea. Like, let's move forward with this. That's that man. That is, that is awesome. I, I absolutely love that. You are dropping nuggets today. I love this. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and something else that I wanted to kind of cover is, you know, you, you've, you've talked in the past about how the internet and social media is making it easier for us to ask for tips and advice, right? Like there's so many ways for us to get information, right? We're in this age of just information and data right now. And it's very easy to kind of find the information that you want um, and also have this weird notion that like we're experts on everything because like we have that data at our fingertips, but there's no substitution for offline transparent conversations. There's no, there's no substitution, right? For that interpersonal relationship building. When it comes to DEI and the employee experience, where do you think companies are getting it wrong? And how do younger generations that are hesitant or are more used to being in this digital age, how do we get them to engage in person in order to dive deeper into learning and sharing our experiences with each other? Okay, one of the things I've been fussing about lately is um, the way we've populated DEI experts. And let me explain what I mean. Um, You'll be surprised how many people I run into that say, hey, I need help. Okay, well, what, I'm the DEI team lead. I'm the DEI VP. I'm the new diversity director or whatever. I say, okay, what's your background? And they say, I'm an I don't know, engineer. Okay, what's your training? Um crickets. And I'm like, uh, okay, how'd you get this position? Well, I was the only black person on the team. I was the only woman in the group. Um, I had a person tell me recently, well, they said, well, we need someone who has brown skin because otherwise it's bad optics, right? So Mm -hmm. this error of thinking that this work is done only through a lived experience because that is not what creates expertise. Lived experience has to be matched with training and education. And I think what it's done is it, it's in some ways, not, not everywhere, not always, but in some ways it's lessened the work. It's made it kind of cliche and trendy. 
And this is why data now has become so important, right? Because we have to prove these outcomes because it's like, well, everyone's, everyone's doing it. That's where I think some businesses have gotten it really wrong. It's thinking anyone, it, it is not easy to facilitate a conversation on race. It's not easy to facilitate a conversation on hate, on division. It's not easy to advocate for security to change how a badge system is coded by the IT team because that person doesn't want their legal name on their badge, right? These are not easy things to do and they take more than just a loud voice or the elevation of someone else's. That's one place I think we've kind of gone a little amiss. Again, advisory board, not necessarily the decision maker. Mm -hmm. Decision-making requires a different set of skills. Um, and then the other part where I think we have got to focus is reminding people that touch, and when I say touch, heart touch, you know, head touch, these physical spaces are still requirements. Um, I'm so grateful for team and Zoom and, and, and I mean, I, I, I promise you, I feel like I reside in a Zoom room. I live on FaceTime. It's kept me connected to my friends, my family, to my workplace. But at the same time, having an intimate conversation is a challenge when you can't read the entire body, right? When you can't physically lean in. Having to actively listen is different. And I think what's happened is we've been taught so much to be so productive and we've measured our success on how busy we are. And so it's easier to be digital because I can come off camera, type an email, answer a text message, right? So yes, we've taught these younger generations that their value is somehow connected to how busy they are. And so coming away from that and getting back to where just the lunch date is more significant, it, it will be challenging, but it must be done and it must be done because the level of communication you can produce in person, because there are so many other cues is so different. And I think as we teach how to read those cues, how to listen for them, there's a desire to engage that way. So as we're teaching leadership, yes, we wanna teach you how to build trust while remote. We wanna teach you how to, you know, all those cues, but we also want you to understand how to read body language, how to see, facial expression, how to communicate with your person that you're listening and that you're being heard and that the other person is also being seen. So I think the way we bring them back, so to speak, if that's a real thing, <laughs> is we model it first and then we just explain why it's so important. And we keep showing the outcome that comes from that kind of heart connection. That heart connection is so important and it, it goes back to what you said earlier about compassion, right? We, we have yeah. to, we absolutely have to bring that compassion back and we have to teach it. You know, we have to re, we have to relearn these things. Yeah. Um, and it yeah. often goes against that, um, that productivity, again, that model, that process that we've been taught and grown up with our whole life. And I kind of, I, I see that passion coming from you. And I wanted to share something with you. So I reached out to Tanya Williams to hear a little bit about, you know, about you and see, you know, I was like, Hey, Tanya, what, 
what can you tell me about Joy Nicole? And this is what she, oh, and this is what she, this is what she wrote back. She wrote, Joy Nicole is passionate about everything she does while leading with compassion. She leads with integrity and creates a culture of accountability with the people she is leading. I'm honored to know her as my adopted sister turned friend and mentor. The feedback she gives others as well as myself is practical yet helps to drive the mission forward. Okay, wait a second. <laughs> oh, wow. So I, I wanted to share that with you. <laughs> because, you know, I wanted to show that impact that you have on people and that compassion that you are leading with. Um, and I think that it's very fitting, right? That, you know, oh, wow. you, you, you practice what you preach and that's very important. And it's something, again, that we have to get back to as organizations and leaders. Um, and I saw this quote last night after I was like coming up with all of our, all these questions. And I, you know, after having, you know, gone through all your profiles and, and researching and listening to, you know, your past work. And I, this quote by this, uh, it comes from, I think his, one of his poems by Adrian Michael. I saw it and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is Joy Nicole. And it's, uh, and he wrote, she's the kind of queen that knows her crown isn't on her head, but in her soul. And I was like, oh man, that, that, that like resonated with me perfectly for you. And um, so can you talk about the importance of leaders and organizations to recognize, appreciate, activate, and empower the women that they work with and employ? A little recovery here, a little recovery. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Wow. So women, we are um, nurturers and, and so empathic. And unfortunately, like we said earlier about being put in boxes, when you're in the workplace um, or, or you're in a professional space, when you're, in a, when you're in the leadership role, that box typically asks you to disconnect from the part of you that is what we would probably incorrectly label mm-hmm. as the feminine. Um, but the part of us that is the soul, you know, that that does feel a need for that kind of deep connection. I think we've missed, we've missed an opportunity to build on the strengths of women in the workplace as leaders, right? We've missed it. We've, like I said earlier, we've used women to check diversity boxes, but not allowed the unleashing of their strengths. So part of my work is to help women take up space and stand in their power. You know, to really understand the part of me that's able to see, listen, read, hear differently, you know, to communicate differently, to connect differently. That part of me is not a weakness. It's a strength. And it's not just a strength for me. It's a strength for the men and males around me. Because we've equated leadership and leadership strength and power with very masculine attributes. And again, I say that because I'm, I, I don't know that we can correctly label them masculine and feminine, right? For me, they're just human attributes and which side of that scale we fall on more or less in a given instant is what makes us the better or worse leader. So I think we've got to teach that. We've got to show women in the workplace don't have to shift into a place where they neglect the part of them that's empathic and nurturing, that soulish connection. 
we it, it can't be misunderstood. Now, there of course are boundaries because I don't want to have a intimate connection with my workplace, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's just, there's their boundaries there. There's a professional space, but even in a professional space, there's a level of intimacy. There's a level of connection. There's a level of, of understanding and, and navigation that happens. And I use my children a lot as an example. You know, when you have five children, they're all very different people. And the way you lead one is very different from the way you lead the other. Mm-hmm. And being able to hear how they need to be led, right? Being able to really hear how they need to be led is something that women are very innately kind of capable of doing. And that skill set needs to be taught on a broader scale the ability to hear with your heart, right? So we understand how to actively listen, but once you've heard the words, how do you apply that in a way or in a, on a style that that individual person, team, that that connection leads how they need to be led? Because we can lead our way. Wait, people say, oh, I have this leadership style. That's great. But if your leadership style does nothing for all the people behind you, <laughs> who exactly are you? I mean, it's, you know, it's, and we, we've made whole industries on, oh, let me find my leadership style because I'm good at leading this way. But you can be great at leading that particular way. But if you don't even understand the other styles and those attributes, if you don't understand that not everyone responds the same way to a different type of leader, you we've... We've made that, we've put the onus of adapting to the style on the team, right? Well, that's the kind of leader they are. Yeah. So we put the onus of the work on the person being led and not on the leader themselves. So what I try to teach women is use that gift, use that way of listening, that way of connection and hear how your team needs to be led. And help those who are struggling to hear that way, to hear one another that way. Give them those tools. Teach them what that feels like, right? And then, again, we start moving from this hierarchical kind of pyramidal structure to a very circular structure. One where there are spokes and wheels and gears, right? And they kind of can help one another move and not necessarily this hammer at the top that says, you know, get her done. (laughs) So, because you know, it's just it's it's great to be productive. Like we want must must be productive, but how we get there again, how we get there, how we come to the outcome, is so different. And if we can honor both parts of ourselves, you know, all of us being both masculine and feminine, when we honor that side and we know when and how to apply it, we're not just better leaders. You know, we're just better people. And we can be better people, like you said, and uh, by just listening to those around us. Right. Um, and that in and of itself, like you said, is leadership that defines leadership is we have, you're totally right. We have these leadership styles. And when we say, this is how I lead, it's like, great. That's how you lead. That's your, I guess your natural default, but you have to remember that again, people are not the same, right? People are irrational. They're emotional. Like we said earlier, They're all different. They all have different strengths. They all have different skills. They all have different experiences. So you have to take those into account when you lead them forward. You have to adapt to their style of, or their mode of motivation 
and how they want to be led. It's not about you, right? It's about, it's about them. And again, it, it goes back to just being this, again, people first and just thinking about them. And the thing I want to touch on very quickly, um, or maybe I'll just mention it as a comment back going back to women is and being nurturers is there's right now with the pandemic, right? It's December right now, but with the pandemic, this whole, what we've been in it for nine months now, mm. we've seen Ooh. women leaving the workforce in droves. Right. I mean, organizations need to find ways to keep women in the workforce this is going to set us back as a society and as organizations decades we have to bring find ways to retain them and be flexible so they can be nurturers at home and in the workplace and so it's so important to understand what your people are going through and like you said earlier we have to view employees as a whole what is what is the holistic view of employees? And I want to touch on something that you brought up before we hit record, right? Is when, when you talked about the irony and difficulty of wearing a mask and being masked and you shared an experience about how some, you know, some people, someone you, you, you said that to someone and they just didn't understand it. Can you expand more on what it means for you and, how leaders need to be aware of these masks and myths and models when we are dealing with people of color, when we are dealing with women. That, that comment I, I, I made, it really has been something I've thought about. Now I'll probably write about it at some point. Um, it's just, I, I'm feeling very masked. So as an epidemiologist, of course, I wear a mask and a shield and then a hood. And so there's all this, there's these layers of masks physically on my face like all of us are handling right now, right? But then on top of that, I've had to live with a mask in the workplace since I entered it. You know, um, as a woman, as a black woman, there are cultural, generational, gender-based biases in the workplace, especially when you're talking about science and medicine and public health, um, still very male-dominated industries. Um, leadership training, executive coaching, very male-oriented industries. Um, they actually refer to things like the feminization of science now, right? Um, mm-hmm. Which is how did science become feminine? But anyway, um, <laughs> I, I have to live with these masks. I have to, I, I've never felt like I was able to be my entire self at work. Meaning I can remember being 35 and pregnant with my first child and absolutely petrified that as I began to show, I would be treated differently. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that need to hide a pregnancy because I'm not sure how they'll quote unquote take it as though they had any right or reason to care, right? Wasn't, had nothing to do with their lives, but mine. But understanding that is a problem when, when I'm uncomfortable wearing my hair naturally when I'm uncomfortable, um, I'll give you another example. I had a gentleman come to me, very sharp guy. He's in senior leadership at a very big company. He said, still to this day, uh, my counterparts can come to work when it's hot and, and shorts and flip flops. 
And God knows if I did, I'd get sent home or they would look at me strange or they'd find somehow that I had somehow become incompetent at work. Mm -hmm. You know, that dress code that you can wear one thing, I must do another. You know, I wrote um, last week about some of these models and myths. One of the things I I talked about with the client yesterday was um, the model minority myth. This myth that there are all these standards that should make up, right, if I'm good or bad. That mask, that mask we put on to fit, that mask we put on to feel like we're, we are part of the team because we've been invited to this table but not been included as ourselves. So I have to put this mask on just so that I can sit here so that you're comfortable, not me, but you're comfortable. So I'm miserable, but you're happier. Yeah. And, and having to deal with that on a daily basis over time is really just exhausting to the soul and spirit. And again, this work, part of it is about not just dismantling the myth, right? Because I can come tell you that's a myth that please don't put that standard on me, but dismantling the structures that support it is, is just, it's, it's a, it's a monster. And so that it, it does come up that, you know, I, I need to exhale sometimes and I'm exhaling already through these eight layers of fabric and plastic and mentally and emotionally, I'm trying to find a way to also exhale and to breathe and to, to disrobe and to shed these masks. And um, sometimes I want someone to ask me and, and how are you and how's that going? So that's, I think that's uh, where that comes up for me is, you know, I, we do this work yeah, and uh, no one ever asks us like, hey, you know, Chris, how are you doing? For God's sake, like you've been talking about, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion. You've been ringing bells and, and good Lord, how are you? Yeah. You know, and, and it's okay if you're not okay today. And I want to hear if you're not okay. Just that, you know, just let me take my mask off long enough to exhale and uh, I'll get back to it. Yeah. Being, being open and welcome for that, I think is important, especially now. And especially for women. And there's so many layers of our, these metaphorical masks, these mental and emotional masks that we wear, right? That when we look at intersectionality, those are all different. Those are all different masks that are suffocating us. Um, And again, we use this term mask and and I think it's been a little bit, um, it's been twisted a bit because of this year. But um, when we look at these mental and emotional and metaphorical masks, right? Mask has been, you know, talked about in business for a very long time, especially Mm -hmm. around authenticity and things like that. Those are masks for, like you said, those are for other people to make them feel comfortable. So they're actually oppressive to us as individuals. That's right. Right. And I don't think people that I've worked with in the past want to see necessarily a side of me. And, you know, I, and I'll just share very briefly too with you that, you know, I, I've recently just had a, uh, an issue come up with someone and they felt very uncomfortable with what I was saying because I essentially called them out on their racism. Good for you. For me. And they're like, you know, they're stirring up all this drama trying to make me feel bad. It's like, no, this is not about me, right? I'm expressing my view. And my view is 
morally and ethically correct. So there, there really should not be <laughs> a debate here, but, <laughs> but, but we have to, again, we have, I'm not here to make you comfortable, right? right. Diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism is going to be uncomfortable. It's not my job yeah. in some of these facets to make you feel comfortable. This is who I am. So um, I know we're coming up on time here. So I want to ask one last question with all of this work that you do, and again, you, you work in so many different facets of business and, and science, what is the impact that you are looking to leave when you lead people first? I think first that people would find me genuine. I think that if I, if I were to say, what would I want people to see as a legacy that I was real, that's first. Um, and second, I say this, uh, it's a kind of a running joke. I wanna put myself out of a job. I wanna to get to the place where we don't have to keep talking about honoring change and honoring difference. And I, you know, I, I just wanna to get to that place where that isn't the work we have to do all day, every day. I wanna to get to the place where it is comfortable to embrace, right? It's, it's, when I say embrace, oh God, please don't go around hugging people, especially <laughs> now, but you know, but to, to embrace difference, you know, to, and not just embrace it, to, I, I wanna be at a place where different doesn't matter, right? That we can just say, that's a red rose and that's yellow, they're all roses. I love roses. And we're not so stuck on the color. Yeah. That's, I just, I would love to get to that place where I don't have to have conversations about respect and language because people just recognize other humans and that our biases, which are not all bad, right? Are just things we like and things we don't. And we can live with that and still be respectful and honorable. That would be just human. Woo, I love that. So join Nicole, thank you again for coming on this podcast. Where can people connect with you? Um, so I'm on social media, of course. I'm, um, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm um, join Nicole M and Instagram, The Alchemist Agency. I have a website. It's just thealchemistagency.com. Um, and frankly, just, you know, call because I, I like to chat. Well, again, thank you so much. This has been a, a, an amazing conversation. This has been a blast. And I, I can't appreciate more just the, the wealth of knowledge and your experience and wisdom that you're bringing on. So thank you so much for the oh, work you're doing. Well, thank you for the work you do. Thank you. And I, it really honestly is an honor. I appreciate you very much. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into this episode of the Leading People First podcast. I absolutely love the idea of having employee advisory boards within your organization to test out ideas and to really allow for inclusion. Maybe that sparks something for you to bring back to your own organization. Dr. Joy Nicole's feeling of wearing masks also really hit home for me. Women and people of color are constantly having to wear multiple masks in order to fit in, when that's really not what we should be doing. I hope you gain some valuable insight on diversity, empowerment, and making space for others. If you know someone who could hear Dr. Nicole's ideas, take a screenshot and share it with them. 
Make sure you connect with Dr. Joy Nicole Martinez on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. All of her information is down below in the show notes. Thank you again for tuning in. Let's continue this conversation on LinkedIn and Instagram. Keep leading people first and stay awesome.